Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome back to the show. Well, just over a year ago, David Eby was sworn in as BC's 37th premier while surrounded by family, friends, and colleagues in a ceremony held in the Musqueam Community Centre. Since then, Premier Eby and his government have introduced a flurry of programs uh, and legislation that has shown he's not afraid to take action. During this fall session, his government passed 19 pieces of legislation, including five different housing bills, which impacts many parts of our housing market, from BC Hydro to the rental market to drug decriminalization to new immigrants, given a pathway to having their credentials recognized. Much has been discussed and debated during Mr. Eby's uh, administration. Now, with the fall legislation uh, legislative session coming to a close last week, the Premier joins us in studio to discuss the many pieces of legislation introduced and what's ahead. Premier B, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Josh. Yeah, good to see um, you. Um, it's good to see you as well. Uh, last time I think we see each other face-to-face is usually in the legislature, so it's good to see you here in a different type of... It's great to be in the studio. Yeah, good to be in the studio. So let's begin with housing. Uh, the housing legislation introduced by the NDP is set to reshape residential neighbourhoods by allowing up to six units on a single-family lot, increase density near transit hubs, overhaul the way municipalities collect fees from developers. Uh, your plan uh, radically alters the fundamental power balance between municipalities and and the province. Do you worry that the province has gone too far in that relationship that has been there for literally decades, and this turns to a certain degree things upside down to a certain degree? Do you worry about that fundamental power balance being shaken up too far? Well, I think, you know, for most uh, people in British Columbia, um, their anxiety is around whether or not they're going to be able to find a place to live, Mm -hmm. whether or not their family members are going to be able to find a place to live. They're not lying awake about the relationship between the provinces and cities and and the distribution of authorities. Um, And so that concern about can we find a decent place to live uh, Mm -hmm. is really core to why I got into politics in the first place, started in the downtown east side related to housing and homelessness in that neighborhood. And housing has been really central to why I'm interested in politics, the injustice around people not being able to find a decent place to live. So for us, for me and for our government, uh, we're going to take a big swing. And we're going at all of the things. We're going at short-term rentals. We're mm-hmm. going at properties that are empty and people are using them as investments through the speculation and vacancy tax. Uh, we're going at money laundering in the property market. We had our first unexplained wealth order uh, filed in court last week. We introduced that legislation at the beginning of my term as premier. And uh, we need to bring on a significant amount of new homes for people and homes that they can actually afford. So I'm, I'm watching in my community, certainly an older single family neighborhood. Uh, you can see the families are not there um, and because they can't afford to be. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of duplexes, triplexes, people being able to break up a single family home and uh, live in one unit while family members live in others or they rent them out or sell off uh, the other units and give people a chance to get into these neighborhoods with great schools and good infrastructure, it's essential. And so the, the idea of do nothing, which is actually being advocated as far as the votes go in the legislature by the other political parties, or tinker around the edges, or um, take some big swings. It, it's just not, to me, it's not really an option. We have to take some big swings here. When you say big swings, I mean, you're, you're comfortable in making that generational, you, you want to make generational change. 
I want people to have access to a decent place to live that they can actually afford. And one of the major barriers to that is that the kind of housing that people can actually afford uh, can't get built for a variety of rules and uh, and structures that prevent it from getting done. Now, mayors that represent communities that do build that missing middle, uh, Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward's been on this program. Brenda Locke, to my understanding, was in Victoria last week raising some of these concerns. And last week, uh, Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, and I were talking, taking calls from um, listeners. And we got a call out of the blue from uh, Richard Stewart, the mayor of Coquitlam. Uh, we had asked him about the legislation. He called himself on his own. Uh, take a listen to what he had to say. This is incredibly impactful legislation. I'm not certain that this is the right measures. It will actually, in our community, will actually slow things down in the short term, simply because it takes a while to start to rezone all of the stuff that they want pre-zoned. Those communities that are doing what has to be done and doing the heavy lifting really ought to have been uh, exempted, I think, from this. And I'd urge the province to contemplate the two sides. Now, that is uh, Mr. Stewart's comments in regards to the impact of the legislation. Here's another comment from him, because those in his community say because of the way financing has been set up, um, they also may not be able to build a community centre. I want to listen to listen to him once again in regards to bonus densities. That's one of our big challenges right now, is that uh, communities have been using the bonus density provisions that were introduced. I was on the Minister's Affordable Housing Committee back in the 90s, when bonus densities was was introduced, it allows us to have high density around transit stations, but have those developments fund, have the landowner effectively funding the the higher density by encouraging the support of rec centers and the fire halls that are needed, the, the amenities that are needed to support really high density housing around transit stations. And that's an enormous risk right now that we could lose all of the funding, effectively, that puts pipes in the ground and, and makes these neighbourhoods work. Uh, you say you want to take big swings. What would you say to Mayor Stewart, who is incredibly concerned that he is calling open line call-in shows, expressing his frustration? Yeah, I, there are mayors uh, in this province that are really enthusiastic and supportive of the changes. There are mayors that have uh, legitimate questions, and Mayor Stewart's uh, certainly in that camp. Uh, the idea that government would introduce... Uh, changes like this without providing provisions that allow for growth to pay for itself, the uh, pay for the pipes, as he says, the fire halls, uh, uh, community centers, and so on, is is not correct. Um, we uh, one of the housing bills that was introduced was a municipal financing uh, bill. That what it does though is it changes the dynamic. So currently, the way things work is you want to build something, you, it's zoned for whatever one story. Mm-hmm. You want to build a twenty-story tower. You go down to City Hall, you say, I'd like to do this. Well, then you enter into a negotiation. And uh, the negotiation can be indeterminate (laughs) in how long it goes on. You and the city in a standoff about what you think you can do, what you can't do in terms of building these homes. Uh, All that time costs money. Uh, You don't know until you actually work out your deal with the city what you're actually going to have to pay. So you don't know what the final cost of the units is going to be. All this time and additional cost is totally unnecessary. We think that it can be all moved to the front People can know in advance if they buy a lot what they're allowed to build, what the cost charges will be to build that infrastructure. It doesn't have to be uh, negotiated individually, site by site. All the city staff that do that work 
all of the individual decisions that are made to allow or not allow uh, housing to go ahead have accumulated to the point where it's incredibly challenging to build the housing we need. We have massive population growth. We have people who can't afford to live uh, in the cities where they work, uh, and we can't do it that way anymore. So it is a shift, but it's not getting rid of the ability to get the money for those things that are needed in community. It's a shift to doing it up front rather than over a period of years in some cases. So I, we understand the spirit of, of the legislation, uh, and there certainly is a demand for, for more housing. But do you worry, for based on your aspirations, where you hope this legislation goes, to the reality, which is we still need more pipes in the ground, we have a shortage of construction workers, and uh, at its core, this is going to take a very long time if, if this is to come to any sort of fruition, That what kind of types of buildings that we want to see built. I mean, is there a jurisdiction you can point to right now that you think has done this successfully? Um, so the the shifts that were made here in British Columbia and the laws that were introduced are based on a number of different jurisdictions around the world. New Zealand is one uh, where they allowed uh, multi-units on a, on a single family lot. Uh, California uh, is another example. Uh, Massachusetts uh, has done work like this. Um, I think that we are probably um, the most comprehensive in addressing all of these issues compared with any of them. And you're right, uh, in terms of actually getting this stuff built, we need uh, the people that have the skills to get that done. And so anywhere we can find a way to take some of that pressure off, so you don't need to do a full rezoning with an architect and, and uh, do all this work to, in order to build more than one unit on a single family lot, address that. Can we do standardized drawings, standardized buildings that comply with the building code that the municipality will say, we're gonna approve those, uh, we know they comply, uh, and, uh, and you can go through the process faster. Uh, and then you don't have to hire those uh, professionals to be able to do that. Uh, that's another way. Uh, looking at modular building uh, and uh, allowing increased uh, modular construction. We've provided support mm -hmm. to a number of modular uh, building producers here in British Columbia that produce those homes that are assembled essentially in a factory and then put together on site uh, rather than built on site, which helps deal with some of the skilled labor. So all those pieces are part of it. Uh, housing is a wicked knot, which is what I, I think your questions are really getting at. Uh, you can solve one piece and then another piece moves. Uh, we're trying to be as comprehensive as possible in our response. Uh, housing at its core is also an issue in and around affordability, which is uh, certainly based on polling looks like the number one issue for people. Now, recently, Energy Minister Josie Osborne uh, uh, mistakenly dropped a memo uh, at the legislature. The memo suggests that... Uh, uh, <laughs> I've got a new Christmas present uh, yeah. idea for her. Yeah. <laughs> it's a briefcase with a handcuff on it. <laughs> but she had, of course, at that memo promised something big and shiny for the budget uh, to deal with the issues in and around affordability measures. One of them was that perhaps um, a carbon tax revenue could be used to freeze BC hydro bills. Uh, would you consider something like that? And can we expect something to address the issues in and around concern over carbon tax for the next budget? Yeah, you know, in, uh, in some <laughs> ways, uh, uh, frustrating that that happened. In other ways, um, uh, a good reminder about... Uh, about, I hope for people, about what our government's working on. You know, the, the memos were about two key things. One is about, um, can we identify uh, improved affordability initiatives for people that are struggling? And the other about, can we, how do we increase our electricity supply to take advantage of some of these major economic opportunities that are out there for us in the province? Um, I know there have been documents revealed under previous governments that showed different, <laughs> different issues. Yeah. These are the kinds of things like, yeah, this is what we're working on. So uh, in terms of uh, hydro, um, we did do a hydro uh, credit on bills, provided support to people struggling with electricity, both businesses and individuals, um, shortly after I was sworn in. Um, it was uh, successful in providing uh, some cost support for people. Um, but those kind of one-off things, um, it's hard for people to count on that. 
And so finding a way to bring down hydro bills is absolutely something that we're looking at. Uh, these regular payments that people have with government, whether it's car insurance where we we reduced rates by 20% or whether it's tolls where we got rid of them or whether it's MSP payments that they had to make where we got rid of them or it's childcare costs where they face them every month or hydro bills, finding ways to bring those costs down in a predictable way uh, is really what we're focusing on. So yes, it's, it's absolutely something that we're looking at. I've got many more questions, but uh, Tim French, our technical producer, had to play Fleetwood Mac, so I have to ask the question. What have you got against Fleetwood Mac Premier? Nothing against the band. I uh, I just, I've tried to like them. I don't, I, uh, I don't know what to say. I just, in the spirit of full transparency, I acknowledged it uh, when I was asked about it. And, uh, and now for the rest of my life, people will play Fleetwood Mac when I enter the room. <laughs> you know they will. You know they will. Uh, so let's touch, just we were talking about affordability before the commercial break. I want to touch on just the carbon tax before we go. Uh, 14.31 cents liter, as you know, uh, there's an exemption in Atlantic Canada uh, by the Trudeau government. And of course, on cue, the Premier's Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario uh, uh, want to see an exemption for natural gas uh, in their provinces. Um you know, we can talk about the specifics of a BC plan versus a federal plan. The core issue is, some have said, it's not changing behavior. Yes, the economists have said at its core, put a price on carbon, it's the right thing to do. But is it changing behavior in an era where we have huge affordability challenges and crises? Uh, what would you like to see done with the carbon tax? Because I know we have our own at 14.31 cents, but some have said, look, it's not doing what we had hoped it would have done when it was first introduced. And I had former Environment Minister Mary Polak here not too long ago, she even says, it's not worked out the way it should have worked out. Is there perhaps a different way to tackle this issue through technology rather than carbon tax going up every single year? Mm. Yeah, great, great question, Joss. So um, one of the things that we did look at was, uh, uh, you know, Alberta and Manitoba uh, have taken their um, uh, carbon tax off of their uh, gasoline. It was 10 cents in Alberta. Manitoba is just starting. What we saw in Alberta, they took that 10 cent a liter tax off and uh, shortly after Mr. Kenny did that, the price went back up by 10 cents. The gas companies just picked up that 10 cents. And so what you've done is you've gutted your ability to fund transit and other uh, pieces of public infrastructure bring emissions down, but uh, you've also handed 10 cents a liter over to the gas company. So we're not looking in that direction, but what we're looking at is how do we support people with affordability um, through the carbon tax? And so we've uh, got the climate action tax credit for people, uh, looking at how we can expand that uh, and support people with affordability. But but beyond that, uh, it, it is working. You know, we have the fastest rate of adoption of electric cars uh, in North America, one and two with California, we go back and forth. Uh, about 20%, 22% of the vehicles sold in BC are electric. Um, it's a significant savings for people who are able to do that. And uh, that's just one example. Our emissions, despite our population growing quite dramatically, our emissions are down uh, since 2017. Um, and our air is cleaner um, as a result. And so there are a bunch of reasons why we would want to do this. Mm -hmm. But uh, for economic growth and the future of the province and maintaining climate leadership in a time when we see record wildfires, atmospheric rivers, floods, heat domes, uh, this is the way the world is going. And so British Columbia being an early adopter uh, gives us a lot of economic advantages as well. The big economic proposals that are coming to our province right now are either uh, net zero by 2030 uh, or out of the gate zero or carbon negative like hydrogen proposals that displace uh, fossil fuels and in uh, heavy trucking, for example. That's where our economic opportunities are, critical minerals in mines uh, mm -hmm. and so on. So it's it's a difficult issue. Uh, I'm having the debate with a conservative party that doesn't believe in human caused climate change uh, and their, cl their climate plan is nothing. 
uh, with the BC Liberal uh, Party, the BCUPs, uh, saying that they're going to abandon this carbon tax that they said was the answer for so long because they're under pressure from the Conservatives. They're pandering to these climate deniers. Uh, we think there's a different path, and uh, and uh, we are being thoughtful about it. We understand people are facing affordability challenges, but the big uh, piece in our province is supporting people without supporting, for example, home heating oil, which is what the federal government did. Mm-hmm. Now, one could argue, like, how achievable is that climate action plan when you still have more LNG projects potentially being proposed, mining, forestry? Um, it still takes a lot of energy, uh, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of demand for all of that. How achievable is the province's climate action plan when we've got all these demands already uh, for a lot of these industries? Yeah, I, there there are people in our legislature and and in our communities that say, look, we we can't uh, have any uh, LNG, we can't have any uh, fossil fuel um, production in the province, uh, we can't have resource development uh, and uh, and be environmentally responsible. And then there are others who say, let her rip. Uh, and uh, in between uh, those two is uh, is where we are, which is uh, new LNG plants need to be net zero by twenty thirty. Uh, and uh, Cedar LNG uh, is meeting that target. This is a First Nations uh, LNG proposal mm-hmm. uh, outside of Terrace, uh, and um, as just one example. Uh, but also, uh, we have major uh, economic development that's associated with zero carbon. Uh, I think we have 19 hydrogen proposals, hydrogen generation proposals across the province, mm-hmm. uh, several uh, critical minerals uh, development projects. Uh, so we can do both, um, but we do need to be responsible about it. And and interestingly, in developing the technologies that we are for these projects, uh, we're a leader in technology export, for example, around hydrogen and uh, and other uh, clean energy systems. So uh, this is the way the world is going, and I, BC will be in a very good position, I think. Uh, and uh, and we got to make sure we're looking after people, though. And uh, and the good news is, Jazz uh, in BC. Uh, people earn uh, the highest wages in Canada currently, and we had the highest private sector job growth uh, last month uh, across the country. Uh, so those are working, but that day-to-day cost uh, piece that people are feeling, especially going to the holiday season, is uh, is front of mind for all of us. Who you mentioned BC United, you've mentioned BC Conservatives. Who do you view as the opposition? Well, it's 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 interesting. I mean, the the anxiety I have is in the growth of the Conservative Party. Here, you have a party that's anti-science, anti-vaccine. The biggest threat they see uh, to kids is teachers and school librarians. Uh, they deny that uh, human-caused climate change is real or that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. And they bring the worst of the American culture wars uh, to British Columbia. This is something that's ripped apart the United States. You saw the guy driving his tractor down the highway, bashing into police cars. This is, this is the product of the Conservative Party ideology in British Columbia. And, uh, and, and it is alarming to me that, that they are seeing the kind of poll results they are. And so I feel very anxious about that. Um, the, uh, the opposition in the legislature is the uh, BCUP party. Uh, led by Kevin Falcon, uh, we have very different perspectives about the direction the province should be going, uh, but but we're at least able to agree on some basic facts about uh, science and the world, uh, and um, and so it's it's challenging because I think I don't want I don't want to get too into the punditry of it all, but I they have changed their position on a number of issues that uh, I have trouble understanding, including on the carbon tax. Uh, except to think that they're pandering to the conservatives. And so it's hard to know exactly, but I know where our party stands, what we stand for on these issues. Mm-hmm. And we're going to keep pushing in this direction, whether it's on housing, uh, on health care, on any other issue. Final question. Uh, the election date is set for October 19th, 2024. Is that still the election date? Or do you think that you could potentially call an election for spring of next year? 
Yeah, that's the uh, that is the fixed election date. That's the the commitment I made to British Columbians. I talked to a lot of people, and uh, not one of them has said please uh, call an early election. Uh, and that includes my wife, uh, who is expecting a child in June. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, um, for for many many reasons, uh, not the least of which is uh, we got a lot of work to do as a province, and uh, and an election is the last priority that people give me when I talk to them. Premier B, I know you have a very busy schedule. I really appreciate you making time for our listeners and coming in studio today. Thank you so much, and Merry Christmas to you. You bet, Jess. Thanks very much.